Hi, Mighty Ones. Adriana here. It's been nearly two years since I first spoke with Rebecca Decker from Evidence-Based Birth about eating and drinking during labor and the importance of evidence-based information and practices. Recently, Rebecca and her team updated their article on the evidence of eating and drinking during labor, and not surprisingly, not only does the previous evidence still hold, but there is further data to support it. This is great news for laboring people, but you'll have to listen to know why. Rebecca is super busy at the moment, so we decided that instead of recording a whole new episode, I'd rebroadcast our previous conversation, and then at the end, I'm going to come in to tell you a bit more about the updates and where you can download a PDF to share with your care provider. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today I'm going to be talking to Rebecca Decker about evidence-based labor practices, and specifically about eating and drinking during labor. It turns out that many hospital labor practices are not based on evidence and can, in fact, be detrimental to the process. How can you know what's what? Rebecca has the answer. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Megan Othling, a birth doula in Albuquerque who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womanofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas-to-be. I want to thank you once again for all the love you're giving the show. And a quick reminder reminder that it would be so super helpful if you could rate the show on iTunes. To do that, go to birthful.com slash review, click on the view in iTunes link, and then click on ratings and reviews and give us as many stars as you think we deserve. So all it takes is one link and three clicks starting from birthful.com slash review, and I will be ever grateful. So today, it's an honor to have Rebecca Decker as a guest on the show. You're probably familiar with the website evidencebasedbirth.com. And if you're not, you need to be. So after listening to the podcast, that's the first place you're going to go. Um, well, Rebecca is the mastermind behind, behind that invaluable site, which just turned three years old. Although her academic research career began with a focus on testing treatments for depression in people with heart conditions, Rebecca has built a strong reputation in maternal and child circles for her pioneering work as the founder of Evidence-Based Birth, whose mission is to get research and evidence into the hands of mothers and families, inspiring them to make more informed decisions about their care. But as this is far from all that Rebecca does, she's also assistant professor of nursing at a research intensive university in the U.S. And how lucky are those students? She has a bachelor of science in nursing, a master of science in nursing and doctor of philosophy in nursing. Rebecca also serves as a peer reviewer for for maternal health research journals, volunteers on the advisory board for improvingbirth.org and has presented to a numerous of leading organizations in the birthing field, including including the American College of Nurse Midwives, the March of Dimes, and Lamaze and Donna International. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you, Adriana, for hosting me. Absolutely. And congratulations on three years of working so hard to get great information out to uh, both professionals and, and parents. 
Thank you so much. It's hard for me to believe it's only been three years, but at the same time, it it feels like um, it hasn't been very long. So it's kind of fun when I ask people, how long do you think evidence-based birth has been around? And they think it's been around for forever, but it's really only three years old. Well, it's very solid and it's very, you've, it, it, you've built something that looks really nice and it's been redesigned and now you have all this great merch. I gotta say my favorite t-shirt is the one that says babies are not pizzas, they're born, not delivered. Yeah, I know that one I was one of the original ones I wanted to make and I had so many t-shirt ideas I had to hold off so finally came out with that one this spring and it's it's one of my favorites. And it's I love that one and it got me thinking because a lot of, you know, words matter. Things are ingrained in our psyche. We think, baby, who delivers the baby? Who delivers the baby? But nobody delivers the baby. Mom births the baby. Um, and it sort of ties in with what you're all about and that importance of questioning everything and looking at what the data says and and both also experiential, um, not just research. So today, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, so today I wanted to touch upon the importance of that evidence-based information in maternity care and use the eating and drinking during labor as an example of what that might look like. So let's start off with what does evidence-based mean? Okay, so evidence-based care, there's it's actually a triad, or I like to think of it as a three-legged stool because there's really three parts to it. Um, the first part is having information that's based on research evidence. And that means, you know, high quality, recent, current evidence, um, or the, the best research evidence that we have. The second part of evidence-based care is having a healthcare professional, care provider who is trained in how to interpret research evidence and can help you apply it to your situation. Um, using their own clinical experiences, you know, to help inform how they translate that evidence to your unique situation. And then, of course, the third part, which is the part that gets overlooked the most, is um, the woman's preferences, values, and goals for her treatment and her care. Um, and that's the part of evidence-based care that, you know, from the very beginning of evidence-based medicine, when it started about um, 25 years ago, the people who started that whole movement were very adamant that the patient, in this case, the mother's values, need to be respected actively asked about and that that's a part of the evidence-based care um, is to elicit the woman's um, preferences and values and concerns. Um, but unfortunately, that's the part that's often overlooked. Um, people may say they practice evidence-based care, but what they're really doing is giving women um, the care that they think the woman should get without actually asking the woman what her preference is. So really, evidence-based care, if you nail it down, it's just those three parts. It's, it's being attended by a care provider who pays attention to the evidence. It's having access to research evidence and it's taking the woman's preferences and values into account. And you see a lot of that, the the preferences of the mom being forgotten also in the language when you hear mom says, oh, they wouldn't let me do this or they're going to let me, you know, go to 41 weeks or they're being that she's not in, you know, the, the language translates that she's not the one that's actually making the decisions as they're kind of may, being made for her. Yeah, and exactly. We kind of have a twofold problem. And the, the first is that a lot of a lot of healthcare professionals are actually not practicing based on best research evidence. Um, and the other half of the equation is that, you know, 
mothers are generally not being listened to or their preferences aren't, there's no concern about their preferences. So we kind of have a twofold problem there. And it may be that research evidence supports, you know, that maybe the benefits of one course of action, um, those benefits are outweigh the risks. But you really have to take into concern the woman's unique individual situation and what her values are. And so we kind of have gaps um, where it's difficult for women to get care because there's just not a respect, as much of a respect for patient-centered decision-making. And then also there's that whole lack of practice based on evidence to begin with. Right, because there's a, several, quite a bit of practices that happen in the, in the birthing center or the hospital setting, um, the birthplace, that are not necessarily based on evidence and that can in fact be detrimental to the process of labor. Um, and I think looking at, we can see a little bit of that when we look at the eating and drinking during labor, which traditionally is something that tends to be thought of as something moms need to avoid. So when you were looking at the evidence, what did you find? Are you talking about research evidence for eating and drinking during labor? Yes. Yeah, so that was one of the first questions I looked at. So I started evidence-based birth in 2012. And really what I did was I made a list of everything that had happened to me personally. And I made it my quest to go find the research evidence to look at the history and, you know, historical evidence and current evidence and find out what shaped our care and why did that treatment or that um, rule um, come into practice and what was the evidence behind it. So eating and drinking during labor was one of the first ones because, you know, for me personally, that was a hard one. I had a long labor with my first baby of 24 hours. You know, I had premature rupture of membranes, so my water broke before labor began. So that, you know, automatically puts me at higher risk as a first-time mom for a longer labor. And from the time I set foot in the hospital, I was told that I was NPO, nothing by mouth. And that meant I wouldn't be able to eat or drink anything the entire time I was in labor in the hospital. Um, unfortunately, I ended up having a 24-hour labor. So that meant that I was not allowed anything by mouth for those 24 hours. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was tired, and there was nothing for me to do to, you know, regain my energy. Um, so I looked at the research evidence and I found right away that there was a Cochrane review. Um, the Cochrane Library is, is um, it's a nonprofit foundation where they look at the research evidence and they put them into something called meta-analyses. That's like a big study. So they'll take all of the smaller studies and combine them into one big study to hopefully show, you know, are there any differences between groups. So in this Cochrane study, they looked at five randomized trials where women were randomly assigned, like flipping a coin, into two groups to either be nothing by mouth, like I was, or to be um, given the opportunity to eat and drink during labor. And there were 3,100 low-risk women in these studies, and the, they found no differences between the groups in the C-section rate, the instrumental, like forceps or vacuum rate, Afgar, Afgar scores, or any other health issues. Mm -hmm. So basically, they found that there were no benefits to withholding food or drink, and that um, they, they, their conclusion was that women have the right to choose whether or not they would like to eat and drink during labor. So if you go back to the history of why we started doing this in the beginning, mm -hmm. it's because, you know, um, there, there was, um, there's this problem called aspiration, where your stomach contents 
can you can like kind of vomit them up a little bit and then aspirate them back into your lungs. That's called aspiration. Which is certainly is something really, you don't want to happen. Right. And it's something that you worry about if you're having an emergency C-section or emergency anesthesia. So this is an extremely rare health problem that was first reported in the 1940s. Um, but if you have, are, have any familiarity at all with you know, how medicine has changed since the 1940s, um, anesthesia techniques have changed considerably. And there's also a greater use of epidurals. And so these two factors have made aspiration during surgery like an incredibly rare event so that, um, you know, they found, you know, they looked at all the maternal deaths between 1979 and 1990. Uh, and there were about 4,100, 4,100 maternal deaths in the U.S. in that decade. And they found that, um, found that the risk of aspiration during a C-section um, was about 0. 0.6 per 1 million women, um, or approximately seven events in 10 million births. You also have to remember back in the 1940s, if this happened, that was before we had antibiotics. So you could develop an infection in your lung and become very sick and there was no way to treat it. So when I looked at the research on this and I found, wow, that's, you know, basically 0.7 per 1 million women will experience this, that means you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to die from aspiration during a C-section. So basically the, the research evidence shows that there, there is no evidence to tell women that you are not allowed to eat or drink during labor. But research shows that in um, the U.S., 80% of women who have a vaginal birth are told that they're not allowed to eat during labor. And that number comes from the Listening to Mothers survey, which is an amazing, high-quality research national survey put out by Childbirth Connection. So basically, 80% of women in our country who have vaginal births are being told they're not allowed to eat anything or have any nutrition during labor, um, even though there's no evidence supporting it. So is I do think, you know... It's a prime example of how um, concerns about legal liability and this, you know, kind of crazy averse aversiveness to risk, where people are so risk averse, kind mm -hmm. of trumps women's rights during labor and even, you know, just the right that they have to respectful care. And so, you know, that's something that is it's just kind of a, uh, the tip of the iceberg. Right. And and not only that, but in this particular case, the not eating can actually hinder your progress because you, especially if you're having a long labor, you need energy, you need fuel to get your body through all this hard work that it's doing and replenish fluids and, and get some energy so you can continue on your labor and be able to, you know, birth your baby. Right. And, you know, birthing centers, alternative birthing centers or freestanding birthing centers are a great example of how women can eat and drink freely during labor without any adverse events from it. Um, so the original birth center study um, took place in 1989 and they followed um, nearly 12,000 women who gave um, who labored in birth centers, some of whom transferred for emergency C-sections. And even though these women had been eating during labor, there were zero cases of aspiration or any kind of, um, or any illness from aspiration, even though, you know, many of these women had eaten solid food before their C-section. So, 
there's there's really just no evidence supporting it and it's it's kind of an archaic outdated practice but the vast majority of women are literally forced into this policy because they're told they don't have a choice does this apply equally um regardless of what procedures or interventions might be happening like say if if a mom is having no interventions then eating during labor the research supports that but what if they're they're having an epidural or they have um pitocin or any other type of i guess um medicine intervention does you know i think that's there's really no, there's really little to no research on that. So the research we have is in, you know, low risk women who are not having medical complications. Um, but because anesthesia techniques have changed in current times, it's, it's just incredibly rare that you would have any aspiration during surgery because our anesthesia our anesthesia is so much improved from the 1940s. I mean, we've had nearly 80 years of progress since then in anesthetic techniques during general anesthesia. So, you know, I would say, you know, they probably, if they're telling you not to eat during an induction, it's probably because your your physician has a high C-section rate from failed induction. So that, that may, you know, they're thinking kind of what about what could happen rather than what's happening right now. And I think that's something that's very common in acute care settings in the hospital. You know, hospitals are very skilled at treating sick people and healthy women often get swept up into that that mindset of, you know, what if something bad happens rather than what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it almost requires you to be reading between the lines to know exactly what how your care is being managed and that it's and and not bringing you into it so much and i think that you've got to understand that the whole eating and drinking during labor thing is is uh definitely um it's not just something that is specific to maternity care it's there's a lot of you know people are asking questions about eating and drinking how how long do you need to be in po or nothing by mouth before surgery or before sedation procedure um, about a year ago, my son had a sedation procedure in the emergency room, and the physician was telling me all about the latest research evidence on, you know, whether or not children should be NPO before sedation, and how they're showing it actually maybe more you're maybe more likely to aspirate if you're NPO. So it's it, there's a lot of um, you know this is not just something isolated to maternity care, um, but it is I think quite drastic that 80 percent of women are told they're not allowed to eat. And uh, there's really no research evidence supporting that. That's so interesting. What about um, IV fluids? Does that kind of goes in hand in hand because sometimes moms are not necessarily NPO, but only clear clear liquids, or that they are required to have an IV um, drip. What does the evidence say about that? Well, the evidence does show that. Um, giving fluids by IV can be helpful for women who are nauseous or experiencing vomiting. So, you know, there there can be a true clinical indication for IV fluids. It's also thought that if you have an epidural, giving IV fluids as a kind of bolus, it boosts your fluid levels so that you won't have the low blood pressure plummeting with the epidural. So there are some clinical reasons for IV fluids, but just, you know, automatically telling every healthy woman who walks in the door, you're no longer allowed to eat or drink, and we're going to hook you up to these IV fluids, has not been shown um, by randomized trials to randomized trials to be helpful. And they have found that the more IV fluids you get during labor, 
the more likely your baby is going to lose weight in the first uh, couple of days after birth because those fluids increase your not only your body weight, but your baby's body weight. So they're born with a falsely elevated weight from extra fluid being on board, and then they urinate that fluid out over the next couple of days, which makes it look on the scale like they've lost weight. And so what the research has found is when you, you know, when this happens to babies, their mothers are, are told to give their babies formula, even if they wanted to ex exclusively breastfeed. So that can kind of sabotage the breastfeeding relationship. Right. I also saw, um, you know, I experienced personally where the IV fluids caused massive edema, which is a medical term for swelling in my lower extremities. And um, there really hasn't been much research, in fact, no research that I could find where they'd ever looked at side effects of IV fluids in women. But there recently was um, a, an abstract I saw, I haven't seen the, the final publication yet, where researchers did look at the effects of, of um, IV fluids on engorgement. So you can have edema or swelling in your breasts related to the IV fluids. So, you know, administering IV fluids without a medical reason is not necessary if you're letting the woman drink because women intuitively know how to drink enough fluids during labor. And if they can't because they're vomiting, then that is a clinical indication for IV fluids. And I love how always within birth, it's not just the the minute that you're experiencing or the hour or whatever's happening in labor, but it's all this interconnectedness of now if you had IV fluids during birth, then it affects your baby's weight, which then is going to affect the care you're going to get from other care providers that, you know, your your pediatrician or your um, the nurses around you because they're concerned about the baby's weight dropping um, below normal, what is, is is known as normal ranges. And then you have to have formula when, in fact, it was just that the baby's weight was just, it, it was more than... It was than, water weight. Yeah, it was water weight. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the moms don't know all those interconnections. And they it's not just the one care provider. It's every single care provider that they see. If that one person is not uh, up on the research or practicing evidence-based care, then they might face consequences from a previous intervention or situation. And it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, and so I think one of the most important things to know, though, is that there is no one single right decision. You know, the answer to any question of should I do this or should I do that is patient-specific or woman-specific. It really depends on, you know, what does the research evidence say? What is the clinician's experience telling them? And, you know, what are the preferences of the woman and her family? So, you know, for, so, for one woman, it may not be the right decision to eat and drink during labor. And for another woman, it, it may be, you know, so it's, it's really, that's the, in, um, evidence-based care is really individualized and that's how it should be practiced. Um, unfortunately, that's how it's usually not practiced. So that's really interesting on my end as a doula. And uh, one of the things that I find very helpful to get that sort of care providers to start thinking a little bit more in the individualized care is of asking the question, is there any reason why? Is there any reason why I can't eat during labor? Is there any reason why I can't, you know, get up and go to the bathroom? Is there any reason why I have to be near the bed or in bed? And that sort of 
gets the care provider to look at the person specifically instead of just saying, no, that's something we don't do, or yes, or, you know, it, it forces them to get out of the traditional cookie cutter care and actually analyze the situation. And if the reason they're thinking that she can't do that is because, you know, I'm tired and I want to go home, then hopefully they're thinking in their mind, hmm, that's not probably the best care. So they'll rethink the situation. So I've found that helpful in any case under situations that is there any reason why? Mm -hmm. You have, so in terms of eating and drinking during labor and a few other evidence-based topics that you've covered, you have these fantastic downloadables, printables that mom can take to their care providers to help them talk about these issues before labor. What are, can you just rattle off the list of downloadables that they can find at evidence-based birth? Sure. So let me think. I've got, I'm, I'm in the process of making them look prettier. So hopefully I'll be able to, you know, you'll be able to download the brand new ones soon, but they're freely available on Evans-Based Birth. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you can just go to evansbasebirth.com slash newsletter. And once you subscribe, you get emailed the link to um, download the articles. And right now, let's see, I have printables on eating and drinking, IV fluids, failure to progress, which is the most common reason for C-sections in the U.S., um, vitamin K, water birth, doulas, the evidence for doulas, and I'm working on two new ones about what is a due date and um, evidence for inducing if you go past your due date. Mm-hmm. Which is, that was the most recent evidence articles that you you published. Right, and so some, I actually have somebody working with me, a midwife who's an expert in writing um, materials at the like at a lower reading level, and so she's working on that with me right now. We're working on getting two handouts on um, based on the due dates article, which is very lengthy and very technical, and breaking it down to make it easier for moms and families to understand. And the rest of us who don't have PhDs in nursing. Yeah, <laughs> although you'd be surprised. I'm I'm amazed at how much women and birth professionals, duels and childbirth educators, like are just soaking up this information and want to learn as much as possible. And I think we've really entered a new era of of one they call it the E patient is the is the slang term for it. And that stands for the engaged patient. In our case, you know, women aren't necessarily patients because sometimes they're healthy, but um, just people are more engaged in finding out the research evidence behind their care, and they want to know, you know, is this evidence-based? What does the evidence say? So we're, we're, we're entering this whole movement where consumers of healthcare are becoming more empowered, becoming more engaged, and really want to be involved in knowing the research evidence behind their care. And so I'm just kind of, I feel like I've been riding the crest of that wave. Like, I kind of saw it coming, and I jumped on top of it, and that's that's how evidence-based birth came into being and I think it's only going to become more and more common Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate that you did and hopefully through more articles and more professionals trying to get and moms also getting the word out will get that to keep snowballing and that wave to keep growing um I wanted to ask you so what are what's your next article what are you working on now so right now I am working on an article all about advanced maternal age or pregnancy after the age of 35. And I'm really excited about that because that's just like one of the hot topics right now. And I'm going to be presenting um, a session at the American College of Nurse Midwives all about evidence-based care for women who are over the age of 35. 
So I'm working on my presentation for that right now, and then hopefully the blog article will come out shortly after the ACNM conference. Fabulous. Well, I'll be looking for that, waiting for it very much so. And of all the stuff that you've worked over these past three years, what's been your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Oh, I don't know if I have a favorite. I think I have some that are not my favorites. Which are not your favorite. <laughs> um, I didn't like writing about uh, group B strep, for example. I mean, it's it's interesting, and I look back at the article, and I can't believe I did all of that work. But um, maybe it's just because it's not something that ever personally affected me, so I wasn't as interested in it. But um, it's a pretty controversial topic. So um, sometimes I look back at my articles, and I'm like, wow, that was a lot of work. I can't <laughs> believe I spent that many months researching group B strep. Um, but, you know, I, I just, there's so many things that I still want to write about. It's just, I have a never ending list. So I've enjoyed almost all of the articles I've worked on. I've especially enjoyed working with more people on the articles. Um, uh, for example, you know, on the article all about your water breaking before labor starts, I worked with the PhD student and it was just great kind of having a more team aspect to that. So I'm looking forward to doing more like team-based articles where it's not just me doing all of the work, but where it's a team of us working on the article together. Sounds fantastic. I, even though you hated it, I appreciate you doing the Streppy um, article because I, it did affect me. And I can tell you that drip of antibiotic going through your arm because it's very thick, it has to go very slow. It is pain. It's annoying. It's even more annoying than the ebb and flow of labor that you know that it's coming it's this thing that you just want to end so you can get on with it so mm -hmm. yeah so I appreciate it <laughs> for sure um, Rebecca how can listeners follow what you're doing and check out all these new things that you've got coming Sure, just make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter to make sure you get all of the updates. So that's evanspacebirth.com slash newsletter. And there's a bunch of free perks associated with being a newsletter subscriber, but then you'll also make sure you get all of the information. And then on uh, Facebook, you can follow Evidence Based Birth. And I'm also on Twitter, at Birth Evidence. And um, Pinterest, at Birth Evidence. And I'm also on Instagram, ebbirth. And so fast forward two years, and all those links and places that Rebecca just mentioned are still valid. You can contact her mainly through evidencebasedbirth.com. And so what has changed in these two years in terms of the eating and drinking during labor that warranted the update for the article? So mainly, it's the number of meta-studies that were used for review has increased um, when what Rebecca mentioned at the beginning of this episode was that 3,100 low-risk moms were taken into consideration or aggregated. Now it's 3,982. So that's 882 more people in being looked at for to find the conclusions, right, to reach the conclusions. And what was found was that people during labor... Uh, under less restrictive eating and drinking policies have shorter labors by about 16 minutes with no other differences in regards to cesarean, vaginal births or operative, operative vaginal births, vomiting, newborn APGAR scores or any other health issues. So basically that, you know, that still stands 
doing less restrictive eating and drinking policies may even make your labor 16 minutes shorter. Now, one thing that I consider really big in terms of things having, you know, what's come up in the past two years is towards the end of 2015, several researchers at the annual meeting of anesthesiologists in the U.S. reported they had this the research findings and they said in their research findings that most healthy people would benefit from a light meal in labor and concluded that fasting, so nothing by mouth, is not necessary in low-risk laboring people. And in fact, that can lead to ketosis, making stomach juices more dangerously acidic if they were to be aspirated. Um, So that just means researchers who presented at this anesthesiology meeting concluded that nothing by mouth is an outdated restriction that shouldn't be applied to low-risk birthing people today. And then the findings were echoed in a 2016 opinion paper published by the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So then the conclusions reached by Rebecca and her team is that low-risk laboring people, including those with epidurals, have the right to choose whether or not they would like to eat and drink during labor, that it should be reframed as a as one of bodily choice, right, of and. One of the things about all these research is very few, only one of them took into account maternal satisfaction or maternal experience in this whole thing. So only one of them went like, huh, how do you feel about not eating for all your labor? So there's that point too, right, that hasn't been looked at so much um, and makes sense that with the evidence that is presented, that the labor in person should have the right to choose whether or not they would like to eat during and and drink during labor. And then the other finding was for those with the dif- that have difficulty managing airways or have eclampsia, preeclampsia, a body mass index of 40 or greater or who have received IV opium medications during labor may lower their risk of aspiration by fasting during labor by actually not eating. So in that case, it's a little bit trickier. But in general, low risk laboring people, including those with epidurals, should get to choose and decide on their own what what's right for them. Another thing that has changed in the past two years, specifically with evidence-based birth, is that that they've had a lot of redesign on their website and redesigned the PDFs of not just the for eating and drinking during labor, but there's been other ones that they've redesigned. Um, And now they have some classes in there for new parents, too. So I would suggest you go check it out. And at the very least, go get the link to the free one-page PDF that you can bring to your care provider to show what the evidence says on eating and drinking during labor. And that's it. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. And if you're pregnant, don't forget to grab my birth partner's ultimate labor support toolkit at birthful.com slash toolkit. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at naturalbreastfeeding.com. The title song for this podcast is Vibe Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. 
I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.